City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the 3rd floor. So in the early 2000s, a small town called Sackville, Nova Scotia, I'm sorry, Sackville, New Brunswick, hired an artist who is based out of Toronto to come to their town. This is a a small little coastal town that sits on the border of New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Islands, you know, those sprawling metropolises of eastern Canada. And this very quaint, small fishing town hired this artist to come in and they said, we want our town to feel magical. And that was the only instructions that they gave. And so they hired uh, a man named Rob Hangeveld, uh, a good Dutch name. And he came into town and began to install his art. Except it wasn't like art that we're used to here in St. Petersburg. He didn't paint a mural anywhere. Uh, He didn't hang any pieces of art. Rather, he installed four things. Uh, He installed a movie projector into the window of an antique store, uh, a Coleman lamp, the electric kind, not the gas kind, in the general store. He put a street light out and then a set of salt shakers on one of the cafe tables. And what was weird and interesting about this installment is, at random times, that movie projector in the window would start coming on. And it would start blinking and flashing. And it would start blinking. And then it would turn off. And it would be just a normal, average, broken down looking thing. People started to wonder what was going on. One day, somebody was sitting at the cafe, and all of a sudden, their salt shaker starts moving. And it starts tapping. It starts tapping on the table. And they realized that this was part of, of the artist installation. And somebody began to write down, wait a minute, we live by the ocean. We know oceany things. I think this is Morse code. And so someone went and sat at the cafe waiting, waiting for the salt shaker to turn on so that they could begin to write down the Morse code. What is it saying? And they, you know, they copied it down, dot, dot, dash, dash, dot, dot, dash. I don't, I don't know Morse code. I'm just saying dots and dashes because I assume this is how Morse code works. It's the best understanding that I had. And they began to translate out of Morse code what this salt shaker was tapping. And as you wrote it down, what happened was you saw a message. And they found out that the same rhythm that that salt shaker was tapping in, the lights were blinking in as well. And they all said the same thing. Every single one of them tapped out or blinked out in Morse code. There is more to life than this. Which is interesting, isn't it? I mean, imagine you're sitting at a cafe enjoying your eggs. Well, if you're in St. Pete, enjoying your avocado toast. And your salt shaker starts telling you that there's more to life than this. It's strange, but it points us to something that we know to be true. That we crave meaning. That all of us, Christian, non-Christian, whatever religion, non-religion, we're a part of. There is something inside of us that's intrinsically human that makes us crave 
meaning. That we want to assign meaning and value to anything and everything that happens in our life. It's got to mean something, right? Because what's the other option? If nothing in our life has meaning, if everything is meaningless, not only are we left without meaning, but we're left without hope. In fact, the the term for everything being meaningless is nihilism, uh, which John Goodman playing Walter Sopcich in an old movie will remind us that, say what you want about the tenets of National Socialism, at least it's an ethos. Nihilism, are you kidding me? You see, we want to assign meaning and value to things. And when we assign meaning and value, it shows what we really love. Let me think about it this way. Let me go through a few examples to help us understand this. If you truly value your family, the thing that will be most meaningful and important for you will be safety. If what you are all about is making sure your family is well, what you're going to love above all else is safety. If what you find value in is success, then it's going to be your reputation. You have to keep chasing it. If I'm going to be successful, I can't have people think, I can't have a bad LinkedIn profile. I can't have somebody giving me two stars on my review. I can't have fill in the blank with your things. If what you truly find value in is pleasure, then you're going to try to suck it out of every experience you can. Every moment, every IPA, every glass of wine, every food that you eat, you have to absolutely enjoy the experience of why? Because this is what I find value in. If what you really value is power, then at every turn in your life, you're going to be looking for control. You're going to be looking on how you can control this situation. You see, whether we're Christian or not, all of us have a system where we have something that we value that then determines what we find meaningful. What's interesting, whether we're a Christian or not, is that all of us tend to live like this life is all that there is. All of our values, all of the things that we put meaning into are things that exist here and now, not things that exist beyond our 20-year plan. And Paul writes to the church at Corinth to talk about this. Here at City Church, we've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians together. And as we've done this, it just so happens by serendipity or providence that we are looking at Paul talking about the meaning of the resurrection here on Easter Day. So the way that we do this here at City Church is I'm going to read a passage from the Bible for us all. Uh, You, I'm going to ask to stand up and listen along and follow along on the screens. And so if you would, let's stand together as we read God's Word. But some will ask, how are the dead raised? By what kind of body do they come? 
You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there, are, there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for the stars differ in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. And the last Adam, that is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does perishable inherit imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago, but intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So if you're joining us for the first time in the morning and you're reading this passage and hearing this passage for the first time, it's a little bit like walking into a conversation halfway through, right? We've all been in those situations where we've walked in, somebody's discussing something, maybe it's something technical, maybe it's something difficult to understand, we hear them discussing it, and if you're anything like me, you sort of creep back out of the conversation, right? I walk in and somebody's explaining the details of how metal is welded together, and I'm very interested for about 10 seconds before I realize that I have no business in this conversation and begin to slink out of the way. In some ways, if you're here for the first time, if you're at church for the first time in a while, this may feel a little bit like that, and I get that. But let me give you just a big, broad-stroke idea of what Paul is talking about here. What Paul is saying is most of us, Christian or non, live as if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. 
And the reason we do that, the reason we live as if he hasn't risen from the dead, is because it is absolutely foreign to our minds. Because we don't understand someone rising from the dead. You see, Christians tend to talk a lot about the death of Jesus because that's something that everybody can wrap their minds around. We've all seen, we all understand the concept of death, don't we? We even understand the concept of unjust death, of somebody dying unjustly. We've seen it happen. We've read about it in the newspaper. We've seen it on TV. But what we don't always have a category for is the idea of someone rising from the dead. That's something that is a little bit foreign to us, Christian or not. And so Paul is laying out for us, Paul is talking to us about what it would mean for us to believe that and what it means when we don't believe that. And he starts by giving those series of natural examples. He talks about seeds falling to the ground. He talks about the sun, the moon, and the stars. And what he's getting at in all of those passages is something that we understand, which is, at the end of the day, we can't control the natural order. We've gotten better at it as humanity has progressed, right? We've figured out how to make sprinklers, so if the rain doesn't come, we can put on our sprinklers. If it's too hot, we've figured out agricultural things. I don't. We know how to make things grow and not things grow. But at the end of the day, ultimately, God is the one who does it. I think about this. We had someone give us a, a very nice plant uh, last Sunday. They left it on our porch for us as a thank you gift. Uh, and it was some, some sort of flower. It was like, it wasn't tulips. I don't think it was daisies. I don't know flowers very well, but it was very pretty. And uh, this morning when I left the house, I looked at it. And here, seven days later, we had nearly already killed this beautiful plant that someone had given us. Right? And we, we put it in the sunlight. We Googled up how much water to give it. We, we did all of the things that you're supposed to do with a plant and yet here these beautiful yellow flowers are turning a very unbeautiful brown within just seven days. Ultimately, God is the one who is in charge of things growing and not growing. Ultimately, the natural order is in God's hand. Okay, great, but what does that have to do with me? Thank you for the lesson, the poor lesson in agriculture, Justin. What does that have to do with me? Well, here's the thing. You and I try to make meaning in our lives. We try to create and gin up meaning by doing things that we think will make God or other people love us. We keep trying to do good works in hopes that God will love us. If I just if I just pray enough, if I just read my Bible enough, if I just be nice enough to other people, then God will love me. Or the opposite of that. Well, I have hardly done anything wrong this week. This week I've been pretty good, and in fact, I have not hardly murdered anybody. That's a little bit of an over-the-top example, but think about the way that you look at your life. You evaluate yourself on how many good things you've done this week and how many bad things you've done this week. Don't you? You know how I know this? Because I do the same thing. 
I do the exact same thing. Look, it's Easter Sunday and I'm a pastor, okay? Let me level with you. I have been unnaturally stressed this week. Why? Because I think that how well I do this morning, how good this specific sermon is, is going to determine the rest of the life of this church. That's what I think. That idea carries with it zero faith in God. Why? Because this is all up to me. If I do a good job, people will like it and they'll come back to church. And then, and then, and then... But if I do a bad job, everybody will walk away. And at brunch, they'll say, man, that was bad. I don't want to go back there. Why? Because I think all of this depends on me. When I live without believing in the resurrection, what happens is I bring down on my shoulders the weight that everything I do must have meaning, and I have to create that meaning with everything, good or bad, that I do. And it's too much to bear. It's too hard. If you have to live your life constantly wondering, am I doing enough good things to give myself meaning and value? You will collapse under the pressure. Just like you can't make a plant grow. Without the resurrection of Jesus, you can't make sense and real lasting meaning out of anything in our lives. Because we're left to either say that everything is hopeless and nothing. Or to strive really hard to create meaning and value out of something. And so Paul gives us those examples of the plants, the stars, to show us that. But he, but he keeps going and he, he goes on this long passage comparing Adam to Jesus. And what he kind of does is says, look, Adam is dust. Adam is is just dust, and dust is meaninglessness. But in Jesus, there is meaning. It was interesting, uh, on my way in this morning, um, there's a show on NPR called On Being. Um, And normally it's kind of on in my car when I'm driving to church in the morning. And it's normally very sort of esoteric and and thoughtful. And, And they had a scientist from NASA who was also really into poetry. Which I thought, well, that's cool. I like NASA. I like to pretend I like poetry. Let me listen to this and see what's going on. And and during the course of the interview, uh, the woman who runs the On Being show was asking uh, this scientist about her life. And the scientist said, and I want to get this right, she said that life is a cosmic accident. And so the only real meaning and purpose we have is to just try to make it so that everyone else around us can achieve the same level of happiness we have. Life is a cosmic accident. The only thing that we've got is to help everyone around us achieve the same level of happiness that we have. 
which at the end of the day strikes me as so strange. Because when I think about NASA, right, I think about the great hopefulness of going to space. What would it mean to have a colony on the moon or on Mars? There's, there's this hopefulness inherent in the idea of space exploration. And yet here, this head scientist at NASA is saying, look, we're a cosmic accident and maybe we can help people be as happy as we are. That's filled with a lot of low-key hopelessness. And Paul says, look, if we are just dust, if we are just a cosmic accident, then what is there to life? Earlier in the chapter, he talked about this and he says, look, if we're just dust, if we're just cosmic accidents, here's the best plan you've got. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you're going to die. You don't know when you're going to die, so you may as well have the most fun today that you can and figure out tomorrow, tomorrow. See, the resurrection of Jesus steps into that moment, steps into that moment of hopelessness and says, no, there is something more. There is something greater. There is something more important in our life. You see, we live without the resurrection. And we live in that eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, and we get into a cycle. And the cycle that we get into is this. If I think that I'm nothing but dust, I may as well get as much pleasure as I can. I may as well get as much enjoyment, as much satisfaction as I can out of this life. And so we begin to live that way, but something happens. We have this creeping sense of guilt and shame from those things that we're doing. So now I have to work double hard because not only do I have to make today feel good, but I have to make it feel good enough to erase the guilt and shame that I've got carrying with me. And it begins to build up and we begin to cycle. And our guilt and our shame, my guilt and my shame becomes a crippling weight. And Jesus says, yes, this is the cycle of dust. But I'm offering you something more. I'm offering you a way out. I'm offering you a way to break the cycle of guilt and shame. To break the cycle of trying to put meaning into everything in your life. And I did that through the resurrection. And Paul lays out at the end of this chapter so clearly what the core of Christianity is. He says that flesh and blood and corruption cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And what he's saying is not that our bodies are bad. Not that one day we've got to get rid of this flesh. No, he's saying that what we have to get rid of is the way that sin has ruined us and the way that we have ruined things through sin. Through the things that we've done, things that have been done to us. Through the things that we've allowed and the things that we've ignored. I love the confession of sin we've used this morning and used throughout the past season. The way it says, for for the indulgence I have shown myself and the lack of leniency I have shown to others. You see, what happens is that you and I begin to judge others so that we feel better about ourselves. But Paul says, no, the way out of this cycle is that God cannot allow sin in His presence. And that you and I, even down to our bodies, are racked with it. 
we can't inherit the kingdom of God. But even though we try to earn it, we can't. Paul says that that the sting of death is the law which is talking to those of us who try to make God love us, who try to clean ourselves up by doing good things, or by trying to place value in something else by ignoring it. And he says, no, no, the sting of sin is death. See, like it or not, we all face law and death. But the good news is what Paul gets to when he starts talking about the victory of Jesus. Because not only did Jesus fulfill the law for you and I. You see, it wasn't just important that Jesus died. It wasn't just important that he rose from the dead. But his life is significant as well. Because in his life, what he did was live perfectly. Why? He was fulfilling the law for you and I. So that then when he dies for us, not only does he defeat death, not only does he begin the problems of this world working backwards, not only does he begin the life at his resurrection, but he can give his good standing before God, his perfection, his moral credit to us. And that's why Paul breaks out in this song. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? I cannot help but be reminded of the scene in Black Panther. And there's some spoilers in here, but the movie's been out for 10 months or 10 weeks. So, sorry. But there's a scene in Black Panther where the antagonist, Killmonger, is standing over the Black Panther, who he has defeated in ritual combat. And he's looking at the princes and the kings and the leaders of the nation of Wakanda. And he's looking at them and saying, is this your king? Is this your king? This king, who I just beat, is this your king? No, I'm your king. And then he begins to take over the country, right? This is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is standing over the tomb, saying, Is this your problem? Death? Sin? Is this your problem? No. I'm your king. I have defeated death. Sin is laying here on the ground. The law, which you so eagerly tried to strive, I got rid of it. I'm standing here. I'm your king. And so the resurrection of Jesus begins to change us. If we truly believe that this is what has happened, if we truly believe that Jesus really did defeat sin, He really did settle the law for us, if He really did defeat death, we begin to live in a new way. And the first way is that we have hope. If there is more to life than this, then we begin to have hope that what we do matters, not just for the future, but the things that you and I do on a day-to-day basis matter to God. Instead of us trying to force meaning into what we do, we get to relax and say, no, this has meaning because of what Jesus has already done. My work, whether it is bagging groceries or being a doctor, my work, whether it is being a student or being a coach, whatever it is that I do, begins to fill with meaning because I am living the resurrection life that Jesus has given to me. And so we are the signs of that resurrection life here and now. We are the signposts that show people that we are not just dust. That there is more than just nothingness and meaningless out there. We become the way that God shows His resurrection to the world. City Church, may we be that signpost, that sign, and that symbol of the resurrection.
Let's pray.